right, so you'd think that we scripted this, and we didn't exactly, but there was a lot of thought and conversation that went over about the entire day, but in particular the last two talks because they're related. Um, so Dr. Merlin just talked to us about management of chronic pain. Um, Dr. Bruce, who's here from Yale University, associate professor there, uh, and his focus is on chronic pain but also opioid use disorders and other problems um, or challenges in addiction medicine. And he's going to talk to us about um, how to manage addiction, but especially focusing on opioid use. Welcome, sir. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. For those of you who do drugs, there are methylxanthines outside, so caffeine is a drug of choice for many of us. So, I don't have any financial relationships other than with my wife. Um, here are learning objectives, which are in available, so we're not going to spend too much time on them. But we're going to jump into some exciting questions. This is the first of many exciting ones. So according to CDC data, how many people died of opioid overdose in the United States in 2017? The caveat being sometimes when things are reported, they're reported as overdose, which is a larger category. This is opioid overdose, which is a smaller subset of the larger category. Hopefully they did. This is a test from earlier. This is not what people normally listen to when they're doing opioids, if you had any questions about that. All right, I think we got enough. There we go, yes, outstanding. It's actually over 70,000 now, so it just keeps getting worse, which is why you're here to learn what to do. And hopefully I can convince you of that. So opioids, as seen earlier, specifically here in the district as well as nationally, is a growing problem. And it doesn't show any sign of getting better. So one big question is, why do people do drugs? Right? I mentioned that I was doing drugs earlier. I was doing caffeine because I find caffeine helps me avoid unpleasant things, right? headaches. Helps me do really pleasant things like run around and drive my children insane. And so most people are doing drugs for those kinds of two things, to feel good or to feel better, right? And so one of the most important things when I'm talking with substance users is to ask the why question. Why are you using the substance, right? From the substance user's perspective, the drug has a value. That person is going to amazing lengths to obtain the substance. So you don't do that for things that have no value. I have never robbed anyone to get calculus homework. Right? I've never robbed anyone to eat spinach. Never. There, if, if anyone here has a spinach problem, that's fine. But the key here is that people are engaging in behaviors that they find are rewarding and pleasurable. And so part of the conversation with substance users is the why question. Why are you engaging? No drug user I've ever met with needs to be convinced that there are harms associated with drug use, but you can't get to solving problems until you understand the root cause. Well, not everybody who does drugs becomes addicted to drugs, right? And so one of the big questions is, well, why the difference? And so this is true. We could talk about this for lots of diseases, HIV, hepatitis C. We can talk about this about behavioral things. There are people that just genetically 
or biologically are more or less predisposed to a condition. So we can say that there are people who are genetically predisposed to alcoholism. But there's a big thing that has to happen if you're going to become an alcoholic. You've got to have some alcohol, right? right? And oftentimes, there's some kind of environmental trigger. And the patients that I take care of, most of the women, for example, are victims of physical or sexual violence. That's the environmental insult that takes someone biologically predisposed to becoming a lifelong substance user. Right? So again, it's this combination, which is why treatment has to address both aspects. Right? Therapy is going to help a lot of on the environmental piece, looking at the social determinants of health, looking at you know, not going to prison for drugs when you could be going to treatment. But on the biology end, we need to think about medications. Right? So it's the two in concert that are most successful. So ultimately what happens when you're a substance user and you're looking to substances to solve a problem, as we've learned, if you've read any of the literature on iPhones, right? iPhones are like crack, okay? They rewire your brain, right? Have you ever, your phone ever buzzed and you thought, I should check that? <laughs> Have you ever had that feeling when you're actually talking to a real person who's in front of you? Yeah, right? I have a 16-year-old daughter. I'm like, hello, I'm in the room. I am actually talking to you. Do I have to text you for you to pay attention to me, right? Maybe that happens to no one else, but come over to my house and you'll see it in action, right? What's happening to us when we are classically conditioned to look at our iPhones or classically conditioned to look at Facebook, drug users also are classically conditioned environmentally, but there's also this big plug biologically, drugs feel good. I mean, really good. Like, the best thing you've ever done in your life good. It's not a marketing to go try them later, but I'm just saying people wouldn't do it if it tasted bad. Right. So chemsex is something that's uniquely coined in uh, British English, not American English, but uh, is something that was actually talked about at Croy this year and something that I think is really important for us to think about whether it's in relation to sexually transmitted infections, which was discussed earlier, or any kind of behavior, that behavior gets more complicated when drugs and alcohol are involved, right? Did you know, and this has been studied, did you know that if you drink five beers, you're less likely to wear a condom? I don't know why it had to be studied, but <laughs> science has proven, and I don't know actually who participated in that study, right? Are you buying the beer, or do I have to buy it? Is that on my, no, anyway. So, the key here is that alcohol and drugs get people to engage in sexual behaviors that they might otherwise say no to, right? And because we know that drugs and alcohol impair memory, back to screening for STIs earlier, you need to be thinking about screening everything. Even if the person says, ah, I don't think I did that, well, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. When I was in Malaysia talking to a gentleman, uh, we found out back then that People were using Versed, midazolam, and they were mixing it with buprenorphine, crushing it up and injecting it, not recommended. And they would have these long periods of blackout, like 12 hours and have no idea what happened, right? But one guy said, but I keep waking up in bed with people with money in my pocket. It's like, okay, that's really interesting, right? So again, not recommended. Um, he needed a lot of screening. General principles. All right, so number one. Substance users are people, and people deserve different.
dignity and respect. And I know people who are providers who care for people with HIV have learned long ago that people should be treated with respect, irrespective of beliefs, behaviors, anything. But substance users sometimes get under our skin in a certain way. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that patient show up in clinic and you think, okay, if only the clinic had a back door, I would use it. Where's the fellow? I'm gonna send the fellow in first. If the fellow survives, then maybe I'll go in. Right. So, so I just think it's important for us, although we know cognitively the importance of treating everybody with dignity and respect, substance users are traditionally treated very poorly. I mean, I've never met a substance user who said, when I go to the ED, they smile and they treat me well. Right? Never. If people are going to engage with you and listen to you, they need to know that you respect them. Right? And that, that can be a very powerful intervention in and of itself. Right? There's actually data in the HIV literature on trusting your provider. Part of trust is dignity and respect. I've had, now hep C treatment's much easier, but back in the day when it was almost like homicide, um, I was convincing patients, substance users, to do the treatment, and one of the common themes was, I don't know if I should do this, but I know you have my best interests in mind. I trust you. So trust is very important. Again, people who use drugs are people. And don't be surprised when people lie and don't take it personally. And it's not just drug users that lie. Just, I mean, if you have teenage children, you're also exposed to that. But people just lie, right? I'm an administrator now, and people lie to me all the time. All the time. I walk into an environment, and it's like, Everyone now is calm. Oh, we're working now. No, you're not working. If you're working, can you close YouTube next time I come in? Because lying doesn't work well when there's evidence to the contrary. But don't take it personally. Substance users have learned that lying helps get the thing they think they need. So why would we think that they wouldn't lie? Don't take it personally. Now that, and the flip side of that is, don't assume that all drug users are lying all the time. Okay? The patient who had traditionally lied to me every time he had ever said something. So he calls the clinic one day and he says, you know, I can't come into clinic um, because I've been shot. And I was like, no, he hasn't been shot. <laughs> I know Dennis, he hasn't been shot. So like, you know, he needs to come into the methadone clinic. We're not gonna like FedEx him as methadone. So he shows up to the clinic, he's limping into the clinic. I'm like, Dennis, what happened? I got shot. <laughs> I was like, I feel really bad right now. We'll get you take-home bottles. Okay. But then I was like, well, if you don't lie to me all the time, I, I really thought you were lying. So anyway. So one of the things that you have to do is screen your patients, right? If you never ask the question, you'll never find it. This is about sexually transmitted infections. It's about opioids. It's about everything. I'm amazed at the number of people who tell me, none of my patients do drugs, to which I always ask, how many have you asked? None. I don't need to ask. I just know. So all of the data in the literature shows that if you just start doing urine toxins on everybody in your lobby, except your staff, you will find lots of people doing drugs. All right? So what do you do, right? Well, one of the big things that's really important is system-level thinking, right? There's your intervention with that one patient, but what about your nurse? What about the team? Dr. Miller was talking about the comprehensive team. We all need to be on the same page, and we need to be thinking about how we're engaging with people. 
And one of the things that's really important is low threshold. When I talk about low threshold, I mean it's easy to get, right? If you come to Connecticut, where you can go get heroin with your ice cream in Hartford, you can get heroin with your pizza in West Haven. Why is that? Well, because, you know, if I'm delivering something to you, it's really hard to show up with the, you know, I'm the heroin delivery guy. But if I'm the pizza guy, right, you can put a lot of stuff in a pizza box, all right? Just if you see pizzas going to weird places at 2 in the morning, get suspicious, right? What I mean, though, is when you go out into neighborhoods and you want to do an intervention, if your clinic says, well, we do Suboxone, we do it at 2 o'clock on Friday afternoons every other week, except when there's a holiday or a national festival, then your patient's never going to have access to care. You've made a very high threshold, right? Low threshold means if you have a DEA number, get your X waiver. Everybody, right? If you can prescribe a problem, you should be able to prescribe a solution, right? To put it more bluntly. But the key is it should be low threshold. Anyone that walks into the clinic at any time should be able to get an intervention. You never want to be in the situation where someone comes in, they're interested in treatment, and you say, I'm sorry I can't help you, and that person is added to the overdose column that continues to rise. Treat everybody. So there's no data to support that if you deny or wait to start people on HIV therapy or anything else, oh, once you're sober for three years, your life is perfect. Um, I've never met the perfect patient. Everyone should be able to prescribe naloxone, right? Um, there's actually a lawyer, Leo Bolesky, in Boston talks about how the actual risk management, the actual liability is if you're prescribing any opioid and not prescribing naloxone, that is a, that, that's a huge issue for you from a risk management perspective, right? Everyone should be prescribing naloxone. And then you've just heard a great talk on pain, so I'm just going to ignore that. So you inherit a new patient. This is, I'm sure, never happened. A 45-year-old man comes in for his refill of oxycodone. It's 30 milligram tablets, two tablets every six hours. I get 240 tablets. Could you write brand name only? You notice there hasn't been a urine tox in five years. But you notice that there have been a few recent emergency department visits for methamphetamine intoxication. The patient's a little agitated. He's struggling to sit still, and he's wondering why the refill is taking so long. You curse the prior provider who left you a mess. You give the refill and find a way never to see the patient again. You call social work or anyone, maybe that fellow, to try and diffuse the situation and get the patient into treatment. Talk with the patient about the emergency department visit and methamphetamine used to gauge interest in treatment and then refill the medication. Do the same thing in D, but don't refill the medication. <laughs> A band that may have been your patient. <laughs> All right, why don't we, we kind of move on. All right, so I think uh, both the last two are interesting. So one of the things you wonder about, right, is what's going on with this patient? And one of the things that may spell the whole I'm agitated and all of these things is the person did what? Used a stimulant. It's one great reason not to be sitting still. Another great reason not to be sitting still and agitated is that you're in opioid withdrawal, right? So the key here is that the first three you shouldn't be doing. Number four, if you know the person's urine tox 
from the hospital, which I didn't tell you, did not have oxycodone in it, right? So it doesn't have anything that's been prescribed, right? If you could find some data like that, then you probably would do what? Not give them anymore. If you're not taking it, you don't need any more. But if the person's been taking the oxycodone and has a separate additional problem, right, then I would refill the medication, but in my world, I'm refilling the medication not for another month necessarily, but it's contingency management. I'm referring you, I'm linking you to treatment. And if you don't want to do treatment, we're going to have other conversations. I'm sure no patient has ever said this to you, but it's really not a problem. So one of the things that's really important, we don't have time to talk about the transtheoretical model of change, but the big thing there, that pre-contemplation, is also what patients sometimes, or people call denial, right? So the basic idea is, I don't know that I have a problem. So in that situation, just telling someone you do have a problem, and the patient says, no, I don't, and then you say, you do, and that doesn't really go anywhere, right? What patients in that portion need, they actually need external evidence. So my patients will say, I don't have an alcohol problem. I'll say, well, you know, you actually have a warrant out for your arrest for driving under the influence. Uh, the police think you've got a problem, right? So that's external evidence. Um, so harm reduction, we've already mentioned naloxone. Syringe exchange, giving clean syringes is really important to prevent HIV. And something that's really important in the addiction world, and, and this often happens, and we'll talk a little bit about this with buprenorphine, is sometimes if you're not providing consequences to behaviors, you are enabling those behaviors. This is really, really important. I find that sometimes, so in, in the behavioral health model of the world, people get discharged and tapered for not following the rules. Especially in the HIV world, there's a lot on harm reduction, and so oftentimes, we're just gonna kinda keep giving the medication no matter what's going on. Sometimes that enables the patient's behavior because what the patient's now hearing is, it really doesn't matter what I do, the provider doesn't really care. And so that's something that you have to think about. So this is a really old slide. This is from Vincent Dole, the, I guess the great grandfather of methadone. And so the basic here is just the life cycle of a heroin user. So on the far left you have Things are great, that high is euphoria. So the person's using early. Later on, you develop tolerance, and now it's not about feeling high or euphoric. It's now just about not feeling sick. And lots and lots of risk happens when they're feeling sick. I was out uh, on the streets of New Haven with a new outreach worker, and he's out there standing. He's got his little his badge that says Yale University, and we're out there standing. And this woman comes up to him off the street and says, uh, I'll give you a blowjob for 10 bucks. And I'm just standing there. And of course, he looks over at me, like, what do I do? <laughs> the woman's completely ignoring me. Apparently, I don't look like a customer. And so she's talking to the case manager. And he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm here. He's stuttering. He's having a hard time. I'm here to help you. Can I help you get into treatment? So what's her response? $5. <laughs> now, the reason she says that is she was in opiate withdrawal, right? She had a very immediate need, and she was trying to solve that. She was not interested in a discussion about some possible treatment somewhere. I'm just meeting you on the street. I don't know if you can actually help me. And what ended up happening was a car pulled up, people that she knew, and she jumped in the car, and she disappeared. Right? So the issue here is that we often feel like 
the euphoria part's the most dangerous. It can be dangerous. People overdose trying to head the euphoria. But a lot of risk happens when people don't feel well. They're willing to use a syringe after someone else. They're willing to engage in high-risk sexual behavior. And then the other part there on the far right is overdose. The kinds of drugs that people are injecting now are incredibly potent, right? There's fentanyl. There are derivatives of fentanyl. Uh, in Connecticut, the DEA did a talk at the Yale Law School, and they were showing a normal-sized briefcase that they had uh, gotten in a raid. And there was enough of this derivative of fentanyl, carfentanyl, which was enough to kill everyone in the state of Connecticut. Right? So we don't have a lot of people in Connecticut, right? But we still have you know, 3.4 million people, so that's a that's pretty decent size. I mean, that's just like maybe the Bronx and Brooklyn. You know, but it's, pretty, you know, it's a lot of people in a briefcase. And you can imagine the, the people that bag heroin, right? You think that's a very scientific process? No, it's not. No, it's not. And so you don't, does not take a lot of extra in a little bag to push someone over. And now uh, they're also starting to add opioids into other things, marijuana that's on the streets and other kinds of drugs. Why? They want to create physical dependence. The way to think about this is, however a drug user can make the drug you're consuming more like nicotine in cigarettes, the more they're going to get repeat customers. And if a few people die from the drug dealer's perspective, that is bad for business, but there's a lot of business. So a 30-year-old comes into clinic, and through much creative and interesting conversations, you conclude that the oxycodone you were giving for back pain is not in the urine, but morphine is. You refuse to refill the medication and call someone else to deal with the patient. You agree with the patient that it was a one-time thing and give all or some of the oxycodone. You discuss treatment for opioids and start buprenorphine. Next, refer to methadone or start naltrexone. All right, why don't we cap it off there. All right, so, wow. How many people here have an uh, X waiver? All right. You're the ones that answered the question, I guess. <laughs> so so um, that's very exciting to be able to start buprenorphine in the context, right? So I think it is important to say oxycodone shows up differently in a urine toxicology than morphine, right? So morphine is an opiate. Oxycodone is a synthetic opioid. So it's always important if you're ordering a urine tox, please make sure you talk to your tax people and know what's being reported and what came from that. Okay, it's really, really important. So one, he's not taking the oxys, so you don't need to refill it. A lot of times patients will say, it was a one-time thing. I ran out of my meds for pain. You know, most patients know that a urine tox clears up in three to five days, and so they're quick to say, I forgot to tell you, but a week ago I ran out because I had to double up for extra pain, which is why I always ask patients before refilling them um, when the last dose was so that I can look back in my note and say, well, you know, today you're telling me that it was a week you were out, but when I saw you last time, you told me that you were taking it every day and your last dose was actually the morning when you came into the visit. And so now, I don't know which one is true, but I'm struggling with the fact that I have to 
differentiate between one being true and one being false. So let's talk about these other treatments. So buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone are all FDA approved for the treatment of opioid use disorder. And then um, motivational interviewing, which is, as the title suggests, getting you motivated into treatment. And then CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to get you to think differently about your, your drug use. So the way I explain this to patients, right, is you've got medication that's helping the biology part, but we got to help some of those environmental triggers. So in Narcotics Anonymous, we talk about people, places, and things. And so how are you going to cope differently when you're out in the environment, right? When you bump into that person that you know, or like that song, ooh, that smell, can you smell that smell? So that's about heroin, that's cooking heroin, right? So all kinds of things can trigger you into thinking or wanting to use drugs. And medication doesn't just solve that, which is one of the big requests you hear from patients. I'm still having some craving, I need more Suboxone, right? Or I need more buprenorphine. And oftentimes they don't actually biologically need more, they need a counseling intervention. So the top is an MRI of the brain, and then we have PET scans uh, below that. This is looking at the mu opioid receptor, so this is the place that heroin goes. On the first PET scan across, bup zero, as you can imagine, there's no buprenorphine. And you can see a lot of things lighting up. So the big red dot in the middle on the far right is the nucleus accumbens, so that's kind of your command and control center for all things pleasurable. But you can see there are opioid receptors all over the brain, prefrontal cortex, which is important in decision making. So what's happening by giving buprenorphine, and the same is true for methadone as well, um, and naltrexone also blocks the receptor but does not activate it. You're, what I tell patients, you're parking a bunch of cars in the parking lot. Why are we doing that? We're filling up the parking lot so that if you use other opioids, there's no place to park. Very simple. This is, unfortunately, this doesn't work for cocaine or methamphetamines, but it works wonderfully for opioids. Methadone, only in an opioid treatment program. Buprenorphine can be office-based. Naltrexone can be office-based. It can work, but not as well as buprenorphine or um, methadone. Methadone has the best retention of any opioid treatment for opioid use disorder. What happens when you take it? You feel better, that's the middle part there. Let's talk about methamphetamines. Methamphetamines are bad. Red means bad. It's shrinking your brain, okay? So lots of bad. Alzheimer's, you know it's bad when the Alzheimer brain looks better than the methamphetamine brain, all right? We know that um, methamphetamines can cause a destruction in motor and memory tasks, right? So this is a big issue, and there's some data that suggests that people with HIV use methamphetamines may have permanent memory issues. It's very problematic. Uh, this is in the slides for you to look at later. These are just some of the specific things that HIV and methamphetamine can do together. None of it's encouraging. There is no pharmacologic treatment that is FDA approved for any stimulant use disorder, cocaine or methamphetamines, right? We're, and I'm sorry to ruin the day there. Um, all kinds of things have been tried, and I'll show you another slide that shows that. But the big mainstay of therapy is that behavioral therapy, trying to motivate people into treatment and cognitive behavioral therapy, which is trying to get people to think differently about their drug use. What are all the drugs that have been tried? There are a lot of medications that have been tried. Unfortunately, uh, what's happened is in a lot of these small samples, things look pretty good. And then, as the sample gets larger, all effect is washed away. This is the newest of those. 
uh, types of studies. This is another small study looking at a medication and found a signal. The big issue is that there, as you can see in the bottom bullet, there, there were tons of exclusions. So perfect patients who use methamphetamines were enrolled. Right? Visit attendance went up, lower use of methamphetamines, but the big issue is it's a very small study, only men, and again, it needs to be uh, studied in a larger group because as we've seen with other methamphetamine studies, all of the benefits washed out once you get it up uh, to a larger scale. Here's a forthcoming trial. This is actually being done in Australia, again, looking at agonist therapy. Agonist therapy has been attempted with mixed results in the past, but really this is another attempt at the same idea, the idea being we've been giving amphetamines to people for attention deficit. Why can't we do this with methamphetamine users? Every time we do it, it doesn't seem to work, but the Australians are going to try it again with the new version. You've already heard about pain. There are a lot of pain websites. The bottom is the buprenorphine training website for SAMHSA, which I encourage everybody to take a look at. If you're not X-Wavered, become X-Wavered. You can save someone's life literally, not just figuratively. So please make sure that you do that. I look forward to some very exciting questions, and thank you so much for sticking through to the end of the day at the finish line. Yeah, one of the things, uh, Doug, maybe we could start out with is, uh, what do you think the responsibility is for all the primary care providers and ID providers in the audience to become Suboxone providers? Is that something that ought to be part of routine care, or are the operational issues so daunting that it really is not practical? So everyone should do it, is the bottom line. You're more likely to encounter somebody who will die of overdose than you are a new HIV infection if you're in the primary care environment. And yet, we've already talked earlier today about the importance of trying to get primary care providers more involved in PrEP. And if we're saying that, shouldn't we be doing it with something with an even higher incidence, right? The, the curve, when you've, when you've seen the curve earlier, it's not even linear, right? It's more logarithmic. So everybody that practices medicine anywhere and we're, we're encouraging not just primary care providers, but cardiologists. I mean, everybody should have, you never know when you're in the hospital, you're going to encounter somebody, and you should have the tools to save a life. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the issues, uh, you know, we have a lot of FDA people in the audience, and I'm not going to ask them the, uh, this question, but why should buprenorphine have different restrictions, different uh, issues in terms of education in order to use it? compared to other things. I, we sort of heard the answer from Jess, but do you want to answer that? That's Congress. So it's, it's, it's required by a statute, which is, does not mean that it's required by science. So it's, it's really a very, very safe medication. And what we've done is we've actually created a barrier which reduces access. So you don't need any additional training to prescribe OxyContin, right? We have an OxyContin problem. But if you want to, and that's a Schedule II full agonist opioid, high risk of overdose and abuse. But in order to do the treatment that's a Schedule III, less risk of abuse, less risk of overdose, so safer, you have to have training. And so it, it doesn't make any sense. I would love to see a flip of that. You need more training and a waiver to prescribe full agonists that are abusable. No, I mean, remove the regulation and stipulation on buprenorphine and make it readily accessible 
but that requires, uh, that requires you as a voice to talk to your representatives to change that. Yeah. Well, let me ask uh, then uh, one follow-up question. So you're a global expert on this. You live in New Haven. How much success are you having in getting primary care providers and ID practitioners to become Suboxone providers? Well, I had the advantage of being everybody's boss in my system, and so <laughs> I, I've made it a requirement. But one of the big things that we've tried to help dispel. Oh, that, in other words, you're, you required everybody at Yale or everybody at your. Everybody in the health center. No, I'm not everybody's boss at Yale. No, by no stretch of the imagination. <laughs> not even close. No, so the big obstacles we found is that people were afraid to do Suboxone or buprenorphine because they were really afraid of, well, I don't know what's going to happen when I encounter that patient. What happens if things are difficult? Who do I call? And so the first thing was to dispel that myth you're already taking care of those patients. The issue is, and why you're so upset, is you have no idea what to do for those patients, right? So here's a skill and here's an intervention. And the other thing that we did is we made it very easy to provide support and referrals for them. So in our system, we've integrated behavioral health everywhere. So you can walk down the hall and find a therapist who can help you personally and also help with the, with the uh, patient and getting them linked into care. So the, the big key though is, creating an expectation in your environment that this is the standard of care, this is what every healthcare provider should do, and then saying, okay, knowing this is what we should do, what are the resources that we need in our environment to be successful doing it? And I think the more you address those two issues, the greater the adoption of that will be. And, and that's presumably, just to say the obvious important point, being a Suboxone provider is not the only therapy these people need. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And so some of that is going to be I mean, motivational interviewing is a lot of fun, so is CBT. Those are basic skills that any healthcare provider can use, and you may find that it's also useful to motivate your patients to take HIV therapy, to take diabetes care, right? So there are lots of things that it can be used for. But yes, the solution is not just a pill, because addiction is much, much more complicated than simply a medication. Yeah? Yeah, well, why don't you come up here and uh, so people can hear you. Or use it. Yeah. yeah. I, I would just add to that. You and might as well sit up here. Oh, you want me to sit up here? Oh. <laughs> well, um, sorry. A lot, of, a lot of us chronic pain folks wear two hats. So I'm also an addiction physician. I, I guess, and I think you'll probably agree with me on this, Doug, that so the, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to provide counseling in these other services, ideally. There are going to be times when your clinic, like if, if you work in a clinic where you absolutely cannot do that, that's not a reason not to provide buprenorphine, right? So this actually happened in the state of Pennsylvania where in order to be, I think it was Medicaid, don't quote me on this, but in order to be reimbursed uh, or uh, for buprenorphine to be paid for by Medicaid, you have to, you had to be receiving counseling as well. So this is huge barrier. So programs were not providing buprenorphine to these patients and the governor nixed it. Like, nixed this requirement and really, as you said, like created a lower barrier to getting buprenorphine. So yeah, provide counseling if you can, but if you can't, give a life-saving medication, you know? And so in the early, in the early days of methadone maintenance, there was a, a look at early therapy versus delayed therapy, right? So to determine how critical it is that you have therapy early on in your treatment. And there was absolutely no difference, right? Therapy is important, but it winds up being really important, like the CBT part, for long-term outcomes. What's most important early on is access and that motivation. And, and MI can be very basic. So we have staff saying things like, we're so happy to see you today. That's, that's really powerful. How many drug users ever hear that said to them? 
But when you say that to them, they go, oh my goodness, I want to come back tomorrow. Right? And that's really important for attention. There's a question about cocaine use disorder and the use of Topamax. So, yeah, there are lots of medications that have been tried for cocaine use disorder. And uh, th one of the big issues with the stimulants, so I'll take disulfiram. Disulfiram actually has pretty good data for cocaine use disorder, but they're small. It was with patients on methadone. It's, again, one of the big problems. And it was found to help, and we've used disulfiram some with patients on methadone with some results. But the big issue is adherence, right? Why do I ever want to take a medication that doesn't make me feel better, and if I don't take it, I can get high? And so that becomes one of the big issues, for, and that's one of the reasons people are thinking more and more about can we give stimulants to stimulant users safely as a way to try and keep them engaged. Maybe they're looking for something that the stimulant will replace and support, but by and large, um, Topamax is not successful, and there are no FDA-approved medications for either stimulant use disorders, unfortunately. There's a lot of active research being done, and the, the holy grail is to find a medication that can help it. So one thing to keep in mind, too, is as I hear that question is, you know, a lot of substance use is polysubstance use. That's probably more the rule than the exception. And so what I mean by that is if you have somebody who's using cocaine, really making sure that you screen for particularly, well, things that can be treated like alcohol and opioids, right? So, um, what's that? And ben benzos. And benzos. Exactly, exactly. So you just want to make sure that you're not missing another substance use disorder for which there is a medication as well. Yeah. And then, um, unless we get some other questions, one last question for both of you. you know, over the last 10 years, if you look nationally or if you look at the district, we've made tremendous progress in terms of HIV. You know, the number of new cases, the number of people retained in care. While we're not where we want to be, we've made a lot of progress. What's going to be the game changer over the next 10 years for substance use disorder? Well, that's easy. No. <laughs> um, so I mean, do we, well, I guess, is it one of the, is, is it going to take the kind of federal intervention with funds from yes. HRSA, yes. CDC, yes. Uh, NIH, in order to change this, or is this going to change because we're just going to decide that we're going to do better. Well, I won't discount that uh, ground-level motivation it's is important. It's always good to put the faculty on the right? spot here. Yeah. But, no, but we, we need resources, right? So think about it. We've known that, so meth people think buprenorphine woke up yesterday. Buprenorphine was discovered in the 70s, right? So buprenorphine and methadone have been around for a very, very long time. Very long time. Methadone is dirt cheap, right? So when we were... This may sound bad. We were buying methadone for Tanzania for a big project. We're getting, there's a big heroin epidemic in Africa, right? It was 50 bucks a year to maintain someone on methadone, right? A lot cheaper than getting HIV or hepatitis or anything else. So, but if, if we were to say, okay, tomorrow we have limitless funding to do an intervention and we can get Suboxone out to everywhere it needs. We can get referral systems so that people not doing well on Suboxone can get to methadone, that we can get syringes out to everywhere that it needs to avoid HIV infection, that we can get naloxone out to, over, to do overdoses. We could make a huge difference, but there are lots of operational and logistical systems that would get in the way of that. States can add additional regulations to the way methadone is distributed, 
States can add additional regulations. New York State, for example, has additional hoops you have to jump through to become a buprenorphine prescriber. So we need, from a regulatory perspective, simplify the system, low threshold, make it easy to save lives, but then pay for the systems so that we actually have the resources. Because if all we have is the knowledge, but we don't have the equipment, we're not going to make a difference. So that's exactly right. We have, so we have the technology, right? So this is an implementation science issue now. And I would say the analogy to HIV is an excellent one. So in the addiction literature, um, you guys are familiar with the, the HIV treatment cascade, right? So you got to know you have it. You <laughs> got to be diagnosed. You got to get into treatment. You got to be retained in treatment. So the, this direct analogy has been drawn in the addiction literature. And um, I, I think a lot of the same tools that were used to attack the HIV epidemic, especially in the early days, could be really helpful here and are starting to be employed here. Yeah. A, a real, real world example is when methadone started in New York City. So Bob Newman was involved and a bunch of people, and they worked to get 30,000 people on methadone. You know how many years it took them to do that? Two years. Because heroin was one of the leading causes of death among young people in New York City, and they said, we'll do anything. And so when I asked Bob, I said, well, that's a lot of people in a short time period. What were you guys doing? We were holding town hall meetings. People were coming up with all kinds of ideas. He said, one guy said, I bet we could get an old decommissioned barge and tie it up in the river and we could start dosing people. And they did it and they had a thousand people dosing off the barge, right? So there's a real world experience. They did the same thing in Hong Kong and had 15,000 people on methadone in two years. So we have, as, as Jessica said, we have all of the tools to solve the problem. The question is, are we ready and willing to do it and to work through the implementation science questions to make it available to everybody? Yeah. Last question. Uh, what do you do with somebody who's on Suboxone who comes in with positive uh, urine screens for uh, uh, opioids or alcohol? Well, so if, if you're on buprenorphine and you're still taking other opioids, the question is, are you taking your buprenorphine correctly, right? So buprenorphine is a sublingual medication. 90% is destroyed by the liver if you just swallow it. It's one of the biggest issues we have is that people don't take it correctly, just swallow it, and then they think they're taking 16 milligrams and they're taking two, and so they don't really feel the effect. So one, are you taking it right? And if not, maybe that's why you're using. Two, maybe you are taking it correctly, but you're not on the right dose. Three, maybe this is not the right treatment for you, and methadone maintenance would be a better option for you. Now that's different than the person who's not, is taking buprenorphine, opioid negative in the urine tox, but also using stimulants. And so a lot of times people are gonna say, well don't I need to kick him off of buprenorphine because now he's using stimulants? And the answer is no, they're different disorders, right? You don't stop HIV therapy because someone got hep C, right? You just say, oh, I've got a secondary problem, I need to address that problem. Okay, well, th again, these, the uh, issues on uh, opioid use disorder were uh, a great part of the symposium. I think if you look at what we did today, you know, in the morning we were talking about antiretroviral therapy, and there are a lot of wonderful advances, but we really have a lot of tools there, and the question is really how to operationalize them. We talked about sexually transmitted diseases, which we know a lot about, but we probably don't pay attention, enough attention on screening and on treating. And then we talked about opioid use disorder, that we need a lot more tools and a lot more resources. So uh, uh, we would be very interested in what you thought about uh, 
the uh, talks today. Uh, two last comments. One is the staff in the back really did a terrific job. We should give them a hand. Um, uh, Donna Jacobson sits uh, anonymously in the back, but she's been behind uh, IAS USA for the past 42 years. So uh, we appreciate uh, that. Uh, and uh, uh, I think, um, uh, again, the faculty did a great job. So we look forward to your comments. And thanks very much for coming.